today I want to talk about an aspect of the kingdom of God coming here like it is in heaven, this idea of reconciliation. And of course, the kingdom of God has many facets. There are many things that we can talk about with the kingdom of God. And when you live in that kingdom under the rule and reign of the king, there's nothing that that rule and reign doesn't affect or have preeminence over, right? So in a technical sense, the kingdom of God, if we are in that kingdom, if we're submissive to that king, encompasses every part about us, every part of our life, our behavior, our action, our thoughts, our heart. Everything is under the rule of this king. You can see why the road is narrow, right? So though there are many facets to this kingdom and the rule and reign of this king is over all things and encroaches on every single area, I want to focus on this specific thing of reconciliation. In Micah chapter 6, sometimes this has been said to be a one-line summary of the Old Testament law. It might be a passage familiar to you. I'll start reading in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of ram, with ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you O oh, mortal human, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He says to do justice, mishpat, to love mercy, kindness, faithfulness, and to walk humbly and obedient before God. This is sometimes seen as a summary of all of that, if you want the cliff notes, I just gave them to you. We're reading the Bible this year, cover to cover in 2022. How many of you guys have ever read the entire Bible before? That's actually a feat. You know, most people haven't done that. If you're ever like slodging through the Old Testament, you can open to Micah chapter 6. Obviously, that's very cliff and in, in the notes, or spark, depending on your age, you know what I mean, whichever notes you like to cheat from. But I like the NET version. I'm reading from the New International Version here, but I like the NET version because you'll notice, for those of you that are reading the NIV, most modern English Bibles will put a footnote here that humility is actually probably not a great translation. In this, it says, uh, what does it say here in the NIV? What does that footnote say? Does anybody want to tell me? Shout it out. Prudently. It almost certainly doesn't mean humility. There's another word for humble and humility, and it's not this word, but translators are a little uncertain what this word means. Listen to this translation. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to promote justice, to be faithful, and to live obediently before your God. This is an encapsulation of what it looks like for God's kingdom to be here now in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. That we would promote 
justice, that we would live faithfully, and that we would walk obediently with God. Now, of course, no one does this perfectly except for Jesus. No one lives perfectly under the reign of the king. No one allows God as king to have rule and reign over everything perfectly. We fall short of being submissive to that king. But Jesus shows up. And he is a living, walking, breathing example of what it looks like in real life, with real flesh and blood, with real problems, to live under the king perfectly, to do justice, to walk humbly, and to love mercy. Let's look over in John chapter 8. We're going to take a look at some examples of how Jesus lived in this kingdom right here, right now on earth, as it is in heaven, in particular, how he did that in relationship to reconciliation. John 8, I'm going to teach you guys how to read the Bible this morning. What does your Bible say right in front of chapter 7, verse 53? Raise your hand if you want to tell me. What does your Bible say? It's usually in brackets. What does it say there? Yes, sir. How many of you guys have ever read that little bracketed part before? How many of you know what it means? <laughs> right. Basically, it means it wasn't in John's gospel. It wasn't in his original writing, although it's probably highly likely it's a real event from Jesus' ministry. There are early manuscripts that have excerpts from this exchange, from this story, in other writers. And now we're getting into how did the Bible come to be? How did we get it in the form that it is in, etc.? You know, you can find some of my other teachings on that later. But suffice it to say, though this might not have been in the earliest work or writing of John, it is an example and story of something that Jesus really did. And so we'll start in verse 2. At dawn... He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery. How did they catch her exactly? They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin to be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus 
was left there. And the woman standing there, Jesus straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a famous passage in the Bible. The woman caught in adultery. And Jesus' response is something that is typically well known. And when we read this story, we see how Jesus deals with these men who are trying to trap him, how Jesus deals with these men who are using this woman for their purposes of entrapment, and it blows us all away. Right? It blows us all away because we're like, wait a minute, what did he just do? What did he just say? This story should raise all kinds of questions for us, right? Like, where'd they get this woman from? How'd they find her and catch her in the act of sex outside of marriage? How did they do that exactly? Did they plant the guy that she was with? Was she married? Was she engaged? Where's the dude? Why isn't he on the scene? Is he with the Pharisees and the accusers? Did he escape before they caught her? Maybe a vengeful husband planted this guy. Who was going to stone this woman anyways? Who was going to exact the execution of this woman? Who was going to do that? There's all kinds of questions that this story raises, right? And Jesus' accusers here, which in the broader story, John is developing this idea that people are starting to really not like Jesus. Did you know that if Jesus was only a cute, cuddly, Anglo-Saxon figure with long flowing hair and blue eyes who pet and cuddled sheep, if he was only that, did you know that no one would try to trap him? Did you know that no one would try to kill him? Did you know that people don't typically execute really nice people? And John is developing this here. He's saying, look, look, people were upset with Jesus. And they think they've got him cornered. They put him on the edge of a problem that can only have one answer. It's called a fork in chess, where you fork someone's piece and their king. So they either have to move their king out of chess, or I'm sorry, out of check, or they lose another piece. It's called a forking move. They think they forked Jesus. Well, Jesus, if you say that we're not supposed to kill this woman, then obviously you're not abiding by the law of Moses, and you're not really from God. But if you stone this woman, then you're going to create all kinds of other problems because what about the law that says the man must be stoned as well? They think they've got Jesus trapped in this apparent dilemma. And this dilemma is about mercy versus judgment. 
And Jesus would have a few things to say about mercy and judgment. And these people are pitting mercy and judgment against one another. And they're asking Jesus to choose. And what does he do? He starts doodling in the sand. That's another question that rises, right? When we read, like, what was Jesus doing? What was he writing? What was he drawing, right? In this story, it's a story about men who were ready to destroy this woman for their own evil desires of trying to trap Jesus. They didn't care about this woman. And yet Jesus flips it around and accuses his accusers. Oh, y'all want to trap me? Oh, you want to use this woman for your own evil gain? Guess what? The first one without sin. Y'all go ahead and do that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Cool. Who's that going to be? What'd they do? Oh, dang, we ain't fork him after all, huh? Why? Because they realized that they cannot exact judgment because they themselves are sinful like she is. It's this brilliant maneuver by Jesus to indicate that mercy and judgment are not pitted against one another. Mercy and judgment can happen simultaneously. Why? Because Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, showing mercy, compassion, grace, forgiveness. And yet, he does justice by saying what? Go leave your life of sin. He doesn't condone the behavior. He doesn't say that what she did was right. He shows compassion and mercy and upholds justice by calling her to judgment, to leave her life of sin. We've got to strive to follow Jesus by extending mercy and doing justice. We've got to be willing to extend a fresh start to people and not become self-righteous. However, this does not mean that we don't call them to leave their life of sin and call them to repentance. Last week, I shared some things about the parable of the weeds, and I think maybe some confusion happened that perhaps the parable of the weeds and other teachings like it mean that we as Christians should not judge anyone. We shouldn't make any sort of judgment on people's lives. We shouldn't call them to leave their life of sin. That is not what I was trying to communicate, nor do I think that's what Jesus and the scriptures communicate. We are called as Christians to make judgments. There are certain judgments that we're called not to make, primarily those of the eternal kind. None of us hold the judgment of someone's eternal salvation in our hands. However, we're called to make judgments and we're called to call others, just as Jesus did, to leave their life of sin. And in a culture right now, in our context, that constantly is trying to force our feelings to be the definer of truth, and tells us that anything that hurts someone else's feelings must be rejected as false and unloving, it's in that context that the greatest sin someone can commit against someone else today is to hurt their feelings. That is the greatest wrong that we can commit. And yet, regardless of whether it's true or not, you cannot hurt my feelings. 
And yet we see Jesus say, go and leave your life of sin. We've got to work hard to stand with Jesus who acts justly and also shows mercy. This means that we're willing to lovingly call someone out on their sin and call them to repentance, just as we would hope that they would lovingly call us to the same. It means that we're willing to forgive when we're wronged and not keep a record of wrongs. It means that we unashamedly call people to the truth of the scriptures while believing the best and having faith that people can change because all things are possible with God. Let's look over at Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna look at how Paul appropriates some of these things in Jesus and his ability to reconcile. We have the Old Testament prophet in Micah and the summary of the Old Testament law saying, what does God want from you, people? Do justice, walk faithfully, and be obedient. And then we get to Jesus who does those things perfectly. And we see an, an example of him exercising judgment and mercy, doing justice and loving mercy simultaneously in one situation with this woman as he walks obediently with God. And then some years later, we're gonna come to this guy named Paul, as we like to call him, Paul, the, his Roman name, Saul of Tarsus. And this guy killing Christians and then later extending right hands of Hulk to people. And he says this about Jesus in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you formerly, who were Gentiles by birth. Right now he's talking about the Romans, right? Not the Jews. Those who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. So he's saying, okay, guys, remember Ephesians, Paul writing to Christians in Ephesus. He's saying, guys, listen, remember that at one point you were considered the uncircumcised. You were the Gentiles. You were apart from God. And you were considered to be that by who? By the circumcision, by the Jews who were chosen by God. But parenthetically, he says, remember that circumcision is just done by human hands. It doesn't really mean anything. Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups of Gentiles and Jews one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility against each other. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. In the first century, did you know that Jews and Gentiles didn't get along? Did you know that there's still racial tensions and problems today? Did you know that? How many of you have ever experienced a racial problem in your life? It's been happening from the beginning. And so the Jews here had been taught by God not to intermarry with other peoples that worshiped other gods that were not Jews, that were not circumcised, that were not in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And they had been taught not to eat with them because of their particular food laws. You know, this often tempted Jews to look down on other people, to see themselves as superior, to see other non-Jewish people even as subhuman. Even though God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them about such self-righteousness. And you know what this did to the Romans? It caused them to look upon the Jews with suspicion and hatred and build their own prejudices against the Jews. And so there's this wall of enmity, of discord, of hatred between these two racial and ethnic groups. That never happens today anymore, right? To this day, there are still ethnic and racial barriers and divisions. And in this country's history in particular, we have seen a particular racial group abuse, mistreat, and enslave another racial group. And if I'm going to oversimplify our contemporary racial conflict, can I do that for a minute? Everybody ready? Okay, listen up and give me a pass. I'm going to oversimplify, but for a purpose, to highlight something. I would say that the groups who have benefited from historical abuse tend to want everyone to forget about the past and move on. And the groups who have been historically abused tend to want to focus on historical evils and gain recompense for the wrongs done to them. And thus, racial gridlock is the result. You can't go anywhere from there. One group wants people to move on. Another group wants to stay stuck in the past and say, you owe me something. And gridlock happens. And if you pay attention, it's all around us. You go through the streets of Asheville and you can see these very messages spray painted everywhere. And yet in spite of this racial gridlock, now and 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, Paul says that Jesus is the only one that can create one new humanity out of the two. Jesus is the only one that can create lasting unity and peace. Only Jesus can unjam racial gridlock. 
Now, of course, as Christians, we should not be limited to thinking only about the spiritual dimensions of racism. Let me repeat that. As Christians, we should not be limited to thinking only about the spiritual dimensions of racism. However, racism must ultimately be defined as a result of our human sin nature. If we define racial problems in a way that does not include the recognition of our sin nature, then we will have an incomplete definition and we will only be able to offer incomplete answers. Ultimately, racism is not sociological. It's not legislative and it's not societal. Ultimately, racism is an issue of the sinful nature of mankind. This is why racism cannot truly be solved except for in Jesus. Racism cannot be ended ultimately until we confront our own sin nature. And our sin can only be confronted and overcome through the blood of Jesus. This is why racism can only truly be solved in the church of Jesus. But we fall short, don't we? True lasting unity and peace cannot happen through the efforts of people and humans without addressing sin. It cannot happen by secular social justice movements alone. As Christians, we must be concerned for those among us that are mistreated and oppressed and marginalized. True religion in the kingdom of God is about taking care of orphans and widows and the poor, those who represent the margins of a society. This is what the brother of Jesus, James, says in his writing. Now, of course, secular justice movements, their efforts can afford and offer some help with temporal issues, and they can do temporary good in the world for many people. But if these efforts are devoid of and don't ultimately lead people to Jesus, they're ultimately coming up short of the peace and reconciliation that Paul is talking about here. Race relations cannot ultimately be solved by human efforts alone. And you know, this reconciliation that Jesus affords in the kingdom of God doesn't apply just to race. It applies to marriage. It applies to friendship. It applies to every human relational dynamic. Did you know that your marriage cannot be what God intended it to be outside of Jesus? Your relationship with your boss, with your roommate, with your coworker, with your neighbor, that those relationships cannot be one as God wants them to be in his kingdom outside of Jesus dealing with our sin nature. That means that we have to be complicit. Jesus don't override our sin nature without our willingness. You know, there's a lot of talk in the media today about things like critical race theory. Critical race theory and all of its extrapolations cannot make one new humanity. 
It doesn't mean that there's no good that it can't do, but cannot do what Paul is talking about here in and of itself. It cannot ultimately destroy barriers and break down walls of hostility between people. Only Jesus can deal with our sin nature. Only Jesus can deal with the hearts of people and save them from their sin and wickedness. Only Jesus can take our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. No matter how much or how little money, privilege, education, or power someone has, only Jesus can change a human heart. Only Jesus himself can be our peace. Only Jesus can be our racial reconciliation. We cannot truly love each other outside of the blood of Christ. We cannot experience genuine racial reconciliation with each other outside of the blood of Christ. And no one can have access to God the Father except through Jesus Christ alone. This means as followers of Jesus, we share God's heart for the poor and marginalized, for those of us that are privileged and have money and power and influence and education. It means that we see those things through a certain lens in the kingdom of God, that they are not primarily just for our own happiness and benefit, but to love others with. It means that if we find ourselves a part of a minority or marginalized or oppressed or abused people group, it means that we see those things through a certain lens in the kingdom of God. It means that we see them primarily through the lens of sin. That sin is the root of the problem, not simply legislation or political ideologies. It's important which one informs the other. The order is paramount. Our view as Christians to see the cross must inform any political ideology, not the other way around. This means that we are involved in justice issues, that we desire equality for all people, that we take stands against injustice nonviolently, that we speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, that we act justly, that we love mercy, and that we walk obediently with God. But we know that holistic freedom and peace and reconciliation can't come just from being treated equitably in this life by other people. We know that's not true freedom. Why? Because we still have an eternal sin debt before our Creator. Racial reconciliation cannot be attained through government legislation and redistribution of power alone, but only through Jesus who said he alone can set us free from the power and enslavement of sin. As followers of Jesus, we must be careful to not be swept away by the world's wisdom and methods of unity. Rather, instead, we know that God offers something so much more real, so much more effective, and so much more holistic in terms of peace and reconciliation that the two can be one with faith, hope, and love through the gospel of Jesus. God has been doing this powerful work of reconciliation for thousands of years, and he continues to do it today. 
But the only way that it can happen is that you allow it to start in your heart. That you allow Jesus to call you and I to repentance. That we would love others as we love ourselves. That we would suffer with others as they suffer. That we would rejoice with others as they rejoice. That we would learn to truly be family by allowing Jesus to break down barriers and walls of hostility. There's walls and barriers right now in our church family. I don't know them all. Some of them may be with me. Jesus calls us to rely on him and to change and become like him so that he can make us one humanity. But it takes work and it starts in the mirror. I want to invite us to continue with Jesus on that journey as a faith community, as a church family, to allow Jesus to reconcile us and that we can show the rest of the world true eternal methods of reconciliation, whether the barriers be racial, ethnic, marital, or any other thing that we like to divide over. Would we let Jesus transform our heart? A couple of questions I want to leave us with as discussion prompts as you are with your brothers and sisters, as you meet together in your microchurches over the next several weeks. How does Jesus' kingdom of equality, inclusiveness, and love, and mercy challenge you personally? How does the secular social justice movement fall short of the gospel? How does religion in Jesus' name, devoid of justice, falls short of the biblical kingdom of God. In what ways can the kingdom of God come now in your life, in heaven, or on earth, rather, as it is in heaven? And maybe specifically, how can that happen in your life in race-related issues? Let's pray together.